hello, everybody, and welcome back to this week's episode of The Bible Breakdown. This week, we are kind of capping off our unit, and in this unit, we've been talking about how the people of Israel asked for a king, the establishment of this monarchy, and they were supposed to be a theocracy that followed God through the work of his prophets, the word of his prophets, but they instead wanted a king. They chose Saul. We saw some good Saul. We saw last week some bad Saul, which would ultimately lead to Saul losing the crown, okay? And so the reason we're going to talk about what we're going to talk about today is kind of this idea that because of Saul's sin, he received consequences, punishment as a result of that sin. So what we're going to be talking about today, and this is what we're doing in the Gospel Project, is we're going actually back to Genesis 18, and it's the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, which seems very uh, out of place, right? But here's the context that we're kind of moving into. We're recognizing that God's punishment of Saul by removing him from leadership was just. So that's kind of, I think, why it's a part of this unit. And it's because he had sinned. Okay, so recognizing that there are consequences to sin, that sin... Uh, is not something that God takes lightly. The idea that God is good to have judgment in the midst of sin is, I think, why we're here. And it's an important topic. Okay, so instead of having it as a quote-unquote topical lesson, which a lot of times when a topical sermon or something like that, it's a a topic that you're preaching on and then you're going to take multiple Bible passages, um, which, which can be very helpful. But the Gospel Project style, and something that I also prefer, is having a topic, but it's still based in a single story or a single passage. So that's kind of what we're going to do here. Not that I'm not going to read any passages from anywhere else, but we're going to talk about this topic that God is good to judge sin, to punish sin, for there to be consequences for sin. We're going to use the story of Sodom and Gomorrah kind of drive that home. And so that's kind of how it connects to what we've been doing. Again, even though it seems kind of a little bit out of, a, out of place, that's the idea. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. It's an important topic. It's very culturally relevant. Um, it's very biblically relevant. So I think it's going to be helpful for us. So we're going to talk briefly about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the implications of that, what it means for us. And how this topic ties into our spiritual lives. So we are going to be in Genesis 18 to start. We'll be working our way into chapter 19 as well. We're going to start in chapter 18, verse 23. So what we saw right before this is God has told Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom. And so Abraham is wanting God to show mercy for the righteous people in the city. So that's kind of the context. Starting in verse 23, it says, Then Abraham drew near. And said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom, 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Okay, so Abraham starts a negotiation with his wife. Nope. Kid? Nope. 
with God himself, he starts a negotiation. So he comes in and he says, oh, would if there were even 50 righteous people in this whole city, you would spare them, right? I mean, far be it from you to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Abraham's uh, Abraham's bringing out all the all the stops here to try to get God to see it his way. It's only chapter 18. Abraham doesn't fully understand God all that well necessarily. Anyways, this is the bargain he's trying to strike with him. So after he makes his case, uh, God agrees. He said, okay, if at Sodom, there are 50 righteous in the city, I'll spare the whole place. But then Abraham gets a little greedy. Okay, Abraham keeps negotiating his way down through chapter 18. He continues to negotiate. So he says, well, what if there were only five less? What if there were 45? Would you would you spare them? God agrees. 40. Yes, he agrees. And each time Abraham has this kind of almost, he's, I, I want to say childlike, not because he's being a, like being immature or something like that, but it's almost like he's just kind of begging, like, could I just have one more cookie? He's like, okay, I'm just going to ask one more time. Can I bother you just one more time? And so he asked him about if there were 30 people, if there were, 20 people and eventually he settles down if there were even 10 righteous people would you spare the city that's what abraham is asking god and god tells him for the sake of 10 i will not destroy it so this is the deal they've struck okay abraham is working on behalf of the city of sodom not wanting it to be destroyed uh we're going to find out that he has an important reason for that but God says, yeah, if there, if we can find 10 righteous people in the city, then I won't destroy it. Okay, I think we know how this is going to go, right? There's a reason Sodom and Gomorrah is famous, not for their righteousness. Okay, so that's the deal they strike. So as we move into chapter 19, we get a little story of how, his, how Abraham's nephew Lot is experiencing the city. So we see a little bit of why maybe... Abraham was so interested in the fate of Sodom. His nephew was there. His nephew's wife and two daughters were there. Okay, so there's some angels that appear to uh, Abraham earlier in chapter 18. They are going to actually show up to Lot's house in Sodom. And uh, he convinces them, hey, stay with me in my house. Um, They're like, no, we'll just stay in the city square. And he's like, no, no, please don't do that. Um, And there's a good reason why. So moving into chapter 19, starting in verse 4, it says this. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Okay, this is a real icky story. There's no way around it. The story is very icky. It gives us a look into what kind of wickedness is happening in Sodom that is leading God to pass this judgment to destroy the city. 
Okay, so the angels go in, and of course, the people uh, just think that they are are men. Um, they're just normal human men. Uh, after they go in, all the all the men in Sodom, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. Those are the five descriptions that we get. So it's meant to be very all encompassing. Uh, they demand that these visitors be brought out to them, and their intention is to assault them. Okay, so uh, the word "no" is a pretty common biblical euphemism for uh, for sex. So that is, they are not actually just wanting to get to know these guys; they are wanting to assault them. That is their that is their plan. Um, Lot then, in the name of hospitality, offers instead, "Why don't you take my daughters?" which just really adds to the awfulness, makes it makes it a whole lot worse. Again, this is a real icky story. Um, luckily, God acts, and through these angels, he uh, blinds uh, all the people that are seeking to harm Lot and his family and these two, two uh, quote-unquote men that are actually angels. Um, so they're not able to carry out the evil that they're planning. Okay, And so after this, the angels tell Lot... Uh, gather your family. If you have anyone that's outside this house, that's part of your family, uh, gather them together. It's time to get out of here because God is going to destroy the city. So he actually does go and talk to um, his two sons-in-law. So it seems from the story, the the way that it uh, is worded, that they're kind of betrothed. So it refers to them as sons-in-law, but they're um, more like fiancés. Um, he tells them what's going down, but they think he's joking. And so it kind of, I think they stay. Whoops. Um but yes, they lot his family go out of there, and God indeed destroys the city. Okay, icky, right? It's not fun. There's nothing fun about this story, except maybe the part where Abraham is uh, negotiating with God. That part's kind of fun, but that part that actually happens in Sodom is no fun. But it is important for us to recognize something from this story, and not just this story, but for really from the whole of Scripture. This is just, again, this is a, a story that helps us understand this topic of God's judgment and his righteousness in doing so, okay? So two things that it's important for us to recognize. One, God is merciful. And two, God's judgment is righteous, okay? And I put it in that order for a reason, because I want to talk about first how God is merciful. Oftentimes, we can think or You'll hear a lot of people say, especially people that would um, take any opportunity to uh, disparage uh, God or the Bible or Jesus, any any of the parts of our faith, uh, that God, there's this, this one God who's super harsh and mean in the Old Testament, and he's raining down fire on everybody. And then there's this different God in the New Testament. He's really nice. Okay, it's a lot, you, you will hear and Again, this is not even just people that are opponents of Christianity, but even Christians, because we there's a lot to understand, and sometimes we don't fully get it. Um, but there's a lot of people who would say, yeah, there's basically two gods. There's the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. There's the judgment God from the Old Testament. There's a different gracious God in the New Testament. It's like he undergoes some sort of major change or something like that. Now, we have a couple problems with this idea. Number one. We know, this is not in particular order, but this is the first one I'm going to say. I'm not saying number one because it's this one's most important. We know from scripture that one of God's qualities is that he is immutable. Okay, fancy word for he is unchanging. He is the same 
all the time. Malachi 3.6, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Then one from the New Testament, James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, that is a quality of our God that we hold to be true. If God is changing, then we have a whole different set of things we got to worry about, right? So one of the parts of God's character that we see in scripture is that he is unchanging. So for someone to say there was one kind of God in the uh, Old Testament and one kind in the New Testament either means there's actually two gods or that our God has changed, neither of which we would hold to be true, okay? But the probably the more important thing is that this accusation doesn't really hold up to investigation. We don't actually have much ground to stand on to say that God is not merciful in the Old Testament. I'm just going to give you a scattershot of a few things that I just was like, oh, this came to mind when I thought about, oh, God being merciful in the Old Testament. And I'm just going to throw them all at you at once. Uh, Genesis 3, God punishes Adam and Eve, but they live and continue to multiply their family, even though they earned death through their disobedience. Genesis 12, God calls Abram out of paganism to be the patriarch of his chosen people. Genesis 15, God tells Abraham one reason for the time in Egypt. So he actually, before the people go to Egypt with Jacob and the whole Joseph saga, back here in Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, hey, your people are going to be sojourners in Egypt and you're going to be enslaved. And he says, one of the reasons is that the Canaanites might repent. It says, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's this idea that the Amorites, which oftentimes refers to the whole of Canaanites, have this opportunity to repent. Okay, Genesis 47. God uses Joseph to provide for the brothers who sold him into slavery. God could have easily passed judgment on these brothers who did such a wicked thing, but he had mercy and instead used the one that they harmed to help them. In the Exodus, God frees his people from slavery and endures constant cries that they should go back and that they are mad that he saved them. In Joshua, God saves Rahab and her family, even though they were pagans who did not seek after God. In Judges, God saves his people from foreign occupation over and over again, even though the people keep turning to worship idols. In Ruth, God saves saves Ruth, the Moabitess, again, a pagan, and her mother-in-law, who had pretty much given up on life, but he provides a redeemer for them. God has mercy on David in adultery and murder. God saves his disobedient northern kingdom of people in Israel from an army of 185,000 Assyrians, even though there wasn't a single king in the northern kingdom who followed God. Uh, God sent his people into exile, but returned them to their land and promises a lasting salvation in his own spirit over and over again. And really, that's just scratching the surface. That's just a, a few examples of God's mercy in the Old Testament, okay? You could mine out dozens and dozens more specific examples, not to mention just the overarching, um, we are sinful people and God is a holy God. And at any moment, we at every moment rather, we are in active disobedience to him apart from Christ. Okay, so the idea that there's only judgment in the Old Testament doesn't really hold up when even a, a small subset of God's mercy is spelled out. It doesn't hold up. Okay, so that's one. God's merciful. 
Second, though, and this is kind of where we're going to kind of land for today and kind of talk more about, is God's judgment, when he does pass judgment, his judgment is just. His judgment is good. It is righteous that God should pass judgment on evil. Okay, so God is holy, meaning he is totally different and set apart from us. He is of a different order than we are. We are not comparable. It's not like apples and oranges. It's like space pears and pineapples, you know, nothing to do with each other. Okay. Space pear would be a cool name for a fruit though on earth. Marketing idea. He's totally different from us. Okay. We, we are created in his image, but he is in on a totally different plane. Right. A part of the fact that he is holy is that he is totally righteous. There is no sin that exists in God. We, on the other hand, are not quite the same because, again, he is totally different than us. Romans 3, 9 through 18. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So that's where we're at. Okay, in comparison to a Holy God, that's what describes us. For God to pass judgment, then, is totally within his character, which is perfectly good. And I'm going to make a bold statement that you may doubt, but I pretty much guarantee it's true with the appropriate qualifiers. No one wants something that they judge to be wrong to go unpunished. No one wants something that they judge to be wrong to go unpunished. Obviously, the difference is, if we're talking like person to person, what we judge to be wrong may be totally different. But if you say, if a person says, yes, I believe that is wrong, then they want it to be punished. I fully believe that. The problem is our ideas of what's right and wrong. It's just a big old mess. It is a big old mess. And not just... Uh, not just culturally and like thinking about the world apart from Christ, even us in the church, we we typically find, well, I don't really want this sin to be punished because I'm really dealing with that. Um, but I'd really like this one to be punished because uh, I don't understand it and uh, I'm not dealing with it. So I really like that one to be punished. And that's a big old mess. For God not to judge and punish evil would be unjust. And if he agrees that something is evil, in his eyes, it's truly evil. So God's, God's perspective on what is good and what is evil is the only one that truly matters. So if something is evil in God's eyes, then it is truly evil. It's not subject to our whims and wishes or our uh, changes in life or the things we're dealing with. It's this set of things that are just built into who God is and the things that are against who he is are things that he judged to be evil. All of humanity, unfortunately, for humanity, for us, falls into the category of what God would judge to be evil. 
like what we saw in that Romans 3 passage. Men of this is again, this is outside of who we are in Christ. This is humanity in its sinful state, unredeemed state. We are all the Romans 3, what it described there. We are not righteous. We don't seek God. We turn aside. We don't do good. We use our tongues to deceive. There's no fear of God in our eyes. That's who we are as sinful humanity in our natural state. Jonathan Edwards, if you're familiar with his uh, famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is a little intense, but there's, there's certainly truth in it. A quote from that, he says, that the reason why they are not fallen already and do not fall now is only that God's appointed time is not come. For it is said that when that due time or appointed time comes, their foot shall slide. Then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. So he's saying basically the only reason that sinful humanity that we aren't just utterly destroyed is because God has had mercy. Because left to our own devices, says then they shall be left to fall as they are inclined by their own weight. That's where we're all headed. That's the path that we choose for ourselves outside of Christ is to fall. To fall into destruction because of our sinful choices. And the problem I think that we have come to grips with God's judgment is that we have a really fickle and self-centered approach to sin. Kind of what I alluded to earlier. Sometimes the things that we're struggling with, we'd really like forgiveness for the things that we struggle with. But for everything else that we're not at least currently struggling with, yeah, judgment is probably the appropriate thing. I agree that that's wrong. I think I'd like for that to be judged. However, I'm dealing with this over here. Um, I'd, I'd really actually like God to be really patient with me because I'm really trying. I'm trying my best and I'm struggling and uh, I really want him to forgive that. But that over there, I don't, I don't deal with that. That's okay for judgment on that. We don't want to deal with consequences. Another reason that we struggle with God's judgment. We don't like to deal with consequences. Less and more and more, we invent ways to keep ourselves from consequences. That's, that's what we want to do is protect ourselves from negative consequences. And we also don't want to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes it can feel uncomfortable to think about God's judgment because it's a lot easier to tell somebody Jesus loves you um, than Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Both are in the Bible and both are true. One is a lot easier to say. We don't want to feel uncomfortable we don't want to feel uncomfortable thinking about God judging us or judging others or telling other people that God judges people. Judge is like one of the worst words you can use. Like, don't judge me. Like, no one should be able to judge me. Don't be judgmental. And there's a there's a point in which that's true. And then there's a point in which, okay, we're it's not judgmental for me to admit that God is who he says he is, that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And to recognize that in his judgment, he is perfectly righteous. Even if in my own judgment, I'm not always perfectly righteous. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. So it's hard to come to grips with God's judgment in that. And again, yeah, we don't want to deal with the consequences ourselves, right? It is not only God's right to judge sin. However, it's one of those immutable, those unchanging parts of his character. So God is good to judge sin for what it is. That's part of his character and it's part of what makes him good. 
It's not like the unfortunate part of God that we deal with. No, this is part of the goodness of his character is that he judges wickedness. He judges sin. It's unfortunate for us because we are sinful, but it is good. Okay, but here's the thing. Knowing all this, knowing that we are terribly sinful, that even in this in this city of Sodom, which we read this icky story, not even 10 righteous people could be found, to know that we're much closer to that than we are to the end of Revelation where God has made everything new. We are, we are infinitely closer as people to the story in Sodom than to the perfection that awaits us in Christ. Knowing that, recognizing that in our sinful state, in our natural state apart from Christ, that we are irreparably sinful, nothing we can do to make up for it, right? I hope that the recognition of that can help us to see the depth of what Christ accomplished on the cross. We go from what we read in Romans 3 to what we read in the story of Sodom to being called saints, to being called children of God and co-heirs with Christ. Humanity apart from God is still the same sinful mess, but because of Jesus, God's justice is fulfilled in the punishment that Jesus endured. And then he extends his grace, kindness, and mercy to us, which are also immutable parts of his character. They both exist at the same time. He is gracious and he judges sin. Those are both parts of his character and they don't work against each other. They work with each other. They help us to understand the other more. So because of what Jesus did, we get to be recipients of that grace, kindness, and mercy because that sinful stain that we had on us because of who we are and the choices we've made, Jesus was willing to take all of that upon himself and to accept the wrath of God, to accept the punishment that we all deserve for God's justice to be worked out. That justice that is not an unfortunate part of his character, but is a good part of his character. So to underestimate our sin and the sin of the world, to not recognize the punishment that we all deserve is really to devalue what Christ took on for us to be forgiven. If we don't think we're that bad or we don't think the punishment should be that severe, we devalue what Christ did. We need to take seriously not only the sin of the world, but also our own sin. Whether we're in Christ or not, it's important that we take seriously the sin that exists in our life in comparison to a holy God. Not in comparison to, the, to my neighbor or my family member or someone else that I think is a lot worse than me. Compared to a holy God, that's the standard. That's how we need to measure our sinfulness and the sin and to an extent the sinfulness of the world because sometimes we can think oh well god should just really probably be nice to everybody and just overlook all these things there's so much that god overlooks and so much he is patient and long suffering with but he provided the ultimate solution in jesus every that that option is available to all people to recognize their sinfulness and to recognize what christ did and this isn't an excuse for us to start pointing the finger of judgment at others, okay? And be like, yeah, I take sin seriously. Now I'm going to call it out and call you out. I'm going to make sure you feel really bad about it. It is a reason for us to recognize our own sin 
to recognize the need for people to be saved from their sin and the reality of judgment, even if it's uncomfortable to think about. Again, it's a lot easier to say Jesus loves you than to say Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead, right? I hope that a recognition of God's goodness to judge sin helps us understand people's need and not in a point the finger kind of way, but in the, I've got to tell somebody about what Christ has done. I've got to tell somebody about the great weight that Christ took on his shoulders because of his great love for us, the mercy that is available because of what he did on my behalf, even when it's uncomfortable. When God punishes sin, he is glorified. It shows us a good part of his character. When God extends mercy, he is glorified. It shows us a wonderful part of of his character, both at the same time are a part of who he is. So as his people, we should seek to uphold what he says is good, to uphold the fact that for him to judge sin is good and to recognize what a, what a beautiful, gracious, merciful thing he did in providing Jesus as well. That's the tension that we live with. But for those of us who are in Christ, the, the tension is so much less because even though we see sin in our own lives, we also see a wonderful Savior who took care of that sin on the cross, a Holy Spirit working within us to help remind us of Jesus' teachings, to help guide us into truth, to help us do the right thing. And so as we look forward, we look forward to a time when we will be completely righteous, though it's not now. But until then, we recognize the goodness of God and judgment of sin, the goodness of God and his mercy and how worthy he is to be glorified.